When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss an array of stories, from the fallout of Kyiv's recapture of Urgeni, sightings of modified British Challenger II tanks on the front line, and the long-term implications of the largely forgotten war between Russia and Georgia, which took place 15 years ago last week. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday the 17th of August, one year and 174 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, James Kilner from the Telegraph's Moscow desk, and former tank commander Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started, however, with the major military and political developments of the past 24 hours. Dom reported yesterday on the apparent liberation of the settlement of Urzheny in the industrial Donetsk region by Ukrainian forces. And since then, we have had that confirmed by various sources. Kyiv has claimed its forces had liberated the settlement as part of a grinding push to wrest Russian forces along the southern front in Ukraine. Deputy Defence Minister Hanomelia announced, Urzheny was liberated. Our defences are entrenched at the outskirts. The offensive continues. Now, this follows the Russian Defence Minister, Sergei Shoigu, saying that Ukraine's military resources are almost exhausted. That's a direct quote, despite receiving arms deliveries from Western allies. Indeed, Russian sources claim that Ukrainian forces have committed their main reserves to the counteroffensive operations in the Western Zaporizhia Oblast. Although, according to the Institute for the Study of War in the US, continued Russian claims of small Ukrainian infantry assaults in the area do not correspond with the alleged commitment of major elements of Ukraine's mechanised reserves. Russian sources, they believe, and I quote here, appear to be incorrectly portraying Ukrainian reserves as one large unitary contingent that Ukraine would commit to fighting as a whole and prematurely claiming that Ukraine has committed all of its reserves based on scattered observations of Western-equipped Ukrainian units. Now, elsewhere, Ukrainian forces continue counteroffensive operations on at least three sectors of the front. The Ukrainian general staff reported that Ukrainian forces continue offensive operations in Bakhmut, Berdyansk and Melitopol directions. Geolocated footage indicates that Ukrainian forces advanced northwest, about 10k south of Orlyiv, in the western Zaporizhia Oblast and have likely made wider gains in the surrounding areas given weeks of consistent Ukrainian activity in the forested areas northeast of the settlements there. 
Some dramatic footage has been circulating this morning of Ukrainian forces shooting down what they claim to be the second Russian military helicopter in the space of a week. It shows a downed K-52, a Russian combat helicopter in the direction of the eastern city of Bakhmut on Thursday. Speaking of aircraft, Ukraine has announced that it will not be able to use F-16s this year. That's coming straight from a spokesperson of the country's air force. As Kyiv's Western allies continue clearly to hold back from supplying the fighter jets, and I'll quote directly what they've said, it's already obvious we won't be able to use these jets to be able to defend Ukraine during this autumn and winter. We had big hopes for this plane, that it will become part of our air defence, able to protect us from Russia's missiles and drones terrorism, but it is not to be yet. Now, this will no doubt come as a major blow for the Ukrainians, who'd argued passionately for months as to the importance of receiving the jets for this counteroffensive. And whilst extensive progress has been made in the sending of jets, given the time it takes for deliveries and training, clearly time has run out. Though it is worth underlining that had the West decided to send Western jets when they were initially requested, then they probably would have arrived by now. And that was something, of course, that Frederick Hagen was very keen to emphasise when we interviewed him last week. Nevertheless, Kyiv's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, has said that Ukraine's military will liberate all territory occupied by Russian forces, regardless of how long it takes, adding this was the Ukrainian people's wish. Quoting him, our goal is victory, victory in the form of the liberation of our territories within Ukraine's borders of 1991. And we don't care how long it takes. As long as the Ukrainian people share this goal, the Ukrainian government will move hand in hand with its own people. Elsewhere, Russian airstrikes on southern Ukraine overnight damaged grain silos and warehouses at one of the Danube river ports, of course, a key facility for grain shipments, as we discussed yesterday. The presidential office has said in a separate statement that there were no casualties, although photos released by the governor there this morning do show destroyed metal walls of the storage facilities and piles of scattered grains and sunflowers. Ukrainian officials have not yet said whether the attacked port is operating. Now, whilst we're on the subject of Russia's attack on Ukrainian war reserves, the Ministry of Defence here in Britain has released their daily intelligence briefing this morning, which says that despite consistent pressures of war, Ukrainian efforts to build up fuel stockpiles will likely be successful in ensuring that we'll have sufficient fuel reserves during the approaching winter period. They said, and I quote, Ukraine has been effective in mobilising its mining sector to maintain output, ensuring a continuous supply of coal is available for thermal power and heating plants in the winter, with substantial gas stocks providing a further reserve. Despite Russian attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure likely continuing this winter, Ukraine demonstrated last winter that it has the skilled workforce and expertise needed to operate and maintain the power network, even in wartime conditions. And I think that is a significant thing just to underline here, that we are going to be approaching winter again in the next few months. And when that does come, clearly there are preparations already being made to ensure that some of the vulnerabilities that were in place last year are not there this time around. Now, briefly turning to the political sphere, a few interesting stories have come out of Europe in the past 24 hours. The EU has transferred 135 million euros, initially allocated for programmes with Russia and Belarus, towards strengthening the cooperation with Ukraine and Moldova. 
It's decided that regions in Finland, Estonia, Latvia and Poland, which were supposed to participate in cooperation programs with Russia and Belarus, may now participating in other existing programs instead. Again, just a marker of the shift that is taking place with long-standing programs now being shifted away from countries that are operating so hostilely towards Ukraine. Two other significant stories. The first reported in the French press this morning is that the National Financial Prosecutor's Office in France has confirmed that it has opened a preliminary investigation targeting the former president of the Republic, Nicolas Sarkozy, for counts of trading in influence and laundering of crime or misdemeanor. They say that the office has embarked on these investigations following a report from the Financial Intelligence Service relating to the reasons for which Mr. Sarkozy was paid by a Russian insurer company. Now, as Politico have reported in a recent interview, Mr. Mr. Sarkozy doubled down on his view that diplomacy, discussions and talks are the only ways to resolve Russia's war on Ukraine. So in an interview published in the French Daily Le Figaro yesterday, Sarkozy argued that Europe needs to clarify its strategy and seek a compromise with Russia rather than pursue its strange idea, his phrase, of funding a war without waging it. Quoting him, without compromise, nothing will be possible and we run the risk that the situation will be generated at any moment. This powder keg could have frightful consequences. And whilst he condemned Putin's decision to invade Ukraine as serious, a bit of an understatement, I would say, and a failure, he insisted that Russia was Europe's neighbour and that despite the misunderstandings in their shared history, we need them and they need us. And as Politico summarise, Sarkozy echoes views that were once common in diplomatic circles in France, where the emphasis was on the long history that binds France and Russia. But such views have lost a lot of currency since the start of the invasion, with more hawkish voices gaining influence in France. And for more on that, I would recommend that listeners seek out an interview that I did with Anne Elizabeth Moutet a few weeks ago, a regular contributor here at The Telegraph, on the history of France and Russia. And she offered a very interesting perspective on the deeply ingrained cultural resonances between the two countries that may come as a surprise to some listeners. And she's got very well connected with figures in the French elite. So I'd recommend that people do uh, seek that out. It was one of the most interesting interviews I, I feel that we've done for, for some time. Now, lastly, we also learned today that the German government has stepped back at the last minute from making a legal commitment to meeting NATO's target of spending 2% of GDP on defence on an annual basis. That's coming from Reuters and certain other sources this morning. A government official told the news agency that a clause pledging to meet the target was deleted at short notice from Finance Minister Christian Lindner's draft of a new budget financing law just before the cabinet passed it to the parliament. Instead, the government pledges to meet the 2% target on average over a five-year period, as already set out in the recent published national security strategy. Now, both of these stories, which I mentioned, are being interpreted this morning as evidence that despite the promises of profound shifts in certain countries as a result of the war in Ukraine, old mentalities and perceptions shaped and cemented over decades still linger. And in the case of Germany, they have been, of course, a major donor to Ukraine of military equipment and certainly a crucial player. Yet compared to the Zeitenwende that was promised by Chancellor Olaf Scholz, many believe that traditional German anxieties regarding mobilisation and defence spending linger with implications not only for NATO, 
But most crucially in the short term, the perception from Russia that these countries are hesitant to do anything that might provoke Russia further and that over time they will revert back to their orthodox positions. So not insignificant developments, at least in how they're being interpreted this morning. Anyway, this seems like an opportune moment to bring in Natalia. Natalia, it's great to have you back. There have been several interesting stories from inside Russia in the past few days. But before we turn to those, I wanted to ask first for your reaction on the slide in the value of the Russian ruble. Just how serious do you think this is? And what has the reaction been like from your sources in Russia itself? Yes, that's for sure has been one of the underreported stories. Obviously, business newspapers and business pages of major international newspapers have been covering the ruble decline. But for many inside Russia, the value of the ruble has a symbolic meaning. Obviously, since the start of the war, foreign travel, traveling abroad has become too expensive and too difficult for many Russians. So it's not as much of a everyday problem as it seems right now. But earlier this week, I think on Monday, the ruble hit the historic 100 rubles per dollar mark, which it's a purely psychological moment, especially after 18 months of war, when Vladimir Putin has been telling Russians that, you know, it doesn't matter that the war didn't wrap up in a matter of weeks. Russia can afford to wage a war. Russian finances are doing well. And indeed, what we've been seeing in the past months is Russia's economic and financial authorities have been able to keep the economy off afloat. We didn't see the economic meltdown that a lot of economists have predicted. But the decline of the ruble in the past weeks and months has been staggering. The ruble has already lost at least a quarter of its value since January. Right now, there's not as much of an impact on the street, but everyone understands that the effect will be visible weeks, months down the line when importers will have to reconsider their prices. And, and obviously that, that will end up with higher consumer prices. And I just remembered that a couple of years back when the ruble was already was not doing too well, the Russian Central Bank has issued a ban against displaying currency boards, against banks displaying the ruble exchange rates on the streets which obviously upset a lot of my photographer friends because they were no longer able to take those you know, beauty shots of Moscow with the numbers and figures for the ruble exchange rate. But the whole idea was not to show those figures in front of Russians and not so that people wouldn't get worried too much. And what we saw last week is was actually quite extraordinary. The Russian central bank that has been praised for years for carrying out an independent and profession, professional policy, the central bank has basically had to succumb to pressure and hold an extraordinary meeting on Tuesday at which it raised the interest rates, uh, interest rate by two and five percent in one go to 20%, which is the largest hike since since the war started, obviously showing how much the Kremlin is worried. And that, that happened uh, just a few hours after a, an advisor to Vladimir Putin came out with an unusual article for the TASS news agency and basically accused the central bank of not propping up the ruble too much. But obviously, there are several factors at play here. First off, the massive defense spending. Russia has been spending a lot of money on... I don't think defense is the right word, on, on the military, on its war in Ukraine, which resulted with a lot of rubles in the system, but actually very little goods and, and, and very little export goods to go around. Another thing that 
is making the ruble weaker is Russia's trade surplus going down, which means that Russia is selling less goods now than it buys. It has to do with the fact that Russia basically stopped selling gas to Europe and that it is now selling oil to Europe and other countries at lower prices. But again, following that intervention by the central bank, the ruble bounced back to uh, 95 from 100 rubles per dollar. Now it's trading around 94, but still this is obviously too little to late and and we'll see how it goes in the future. Thank you, Natalia. Really interesting hearing your perspectives on what is, of course, a major story. Now, there's another interesting one today is that Kyiv is intending to invest significant political capital to deepen ties with African countries to counter Moscow's influence on the continent. They've indeed said that they are starting from scratch in Africa. Now, in this context, it's interesting to see Russia's recent activities on the continent and the disinformation that they are spreading there. And you recently wrote about how they claim Britain has hatched a plot with Ukraine to assassinate pro-Moscow leaders in Africa. Just wondering what you can tell us about this story. Yeah, it's quite an unusual story that came up yesterday. And throughout this war, we have seen Russian officials of all stripes to warn the international community of all sorts of false flag attacks that they think the West or Ukraine are preparing. This time, the, the story didn't come from an official, an official per se, but mysteriously, it appeared on all of Russia's three major news wires at the same time on the dot at three o'clock in the morning. They quoted an unnamed diplomatic and military source who claimed that Brits, MI6 to be precise, has hatched a plan to assassinate pro-Russian leaders in Africa. And in order to do that, they allegedly recruited about 100 Ukrainian soldiers described by the Russian source as um, Ukrainian nationalists and neo-Nazis who apparently, as they claim, are going to travel from the Ukrainian port of Ismail to Sudan in the coming days. Again, let's see what happens. You know, it could be Moscow purely laying the groundwork for a false flag attack down the line. But definitely the, the circumstances of that news story are quite murky and um, unusual. It does feel like a very bizarre claim, but yes, we'll, we'll follow it closely. Just another story I wanted to ask you about, Natalia, is a rather bizarre one relating to Russian disinformation and sort of propaganda, is we've seen former President Dmitry Medvedev inspecting what Russian army claims is an ex- exhibit of Western equipment that it's captured whilst fighting in Ukraine. It's obviously designed for the cameras. Uh, you've seen it. I've seen it. What did you make of it? The first impression I had, I just uh, remembered how this is what Ukraine has been doing for years. So it struck me as a copycat of what Ukrainians have been doing since 2014. Anyone who has visited Kiev could see a trophy tank, a trophy armored vehicle here and there. I remember something like six, seven years back, you would see a whole exhibition, like an open air exhibition of the military hardware captured by the Ukrainian troops in eastern Ukraine displayed at an open air victory park outside in Kiev. So now Russia is trying to do the same. I guess the idea is to show to Russia 
Russians that this war is real. It's not just what they see on news show. Dmitry Medvedev was the first major official to see it himself. It happened at an arms at a weapons expo outside Moscow yesterday. And it, it struck me as a, as a, I don't want to say quite well done, but obviously it wasn't a whole exhibition and a lot of effort was put into it. There was all sorts of weaponry. You could spot a Bayraktar drone, an American Humvee, a French AMX armored vehicle. There was also artistically done display of sandbags, machine guns, crates of ammunition. And there was a skeleton discreetly lying about just behind those crates. It wasn't clear, however, if the skeleton was real or not. But it looks like this exhibition is going on a tour around Russia sometime soon. Yeah, I'd recommend listeners check out the footage. It is rather surreal, especially the skeleton, as you say, is just propped up in the background and near some weapons. I think it is probably a, a fake one. It looks like it might be a film prop. I would very much like to hope so, yes. Yes, indeed. One last question uh, for you, Natalia, which is this story you were reporting on a few days ago for us on Russian Orthodox priests taking inflatable churches to the front lines. We have some images on this one and you've written it up for us. What's going on here? Yeah, the story also came from the arms, from the weaponry expo as well. As some of our listeners might know, the Russian Orthodox Church has has made very little secret of its alliances in the war. Patriarch Kirill, the head of the church, has pretty much backed Russia, has been praying for Putin and for the Russian victory at Russian churches. So what we've seen in, in recent months, not even recent months, but in recent years, the Russian Orthodox Church has often provided an ideological backing and an actual blessing to what the government has been doing. So in, in its latest outreach, the church has presented inflatable churches that can be dispatched to the front lines. What we saw at the Arms Expo this week is sort of a modular church which consists of a caravan equipped with two cots, a toilet and a bathroom, and a separate inflatable tent that, according to the priest who was giving the tour, can be folded out in 10 minutes. If there are two people around, they can quickly put icons on the wall, do the thing, as the priest told Russian news agency Ria Novosti, and fold it up and go. So... Apparently, the Russian Orthodox Church is prepared to do its bit for the war, even if it's not taking an active role in it yet. Thank you very much, Natalia. I know you have to dash off to uh, go and write up a story. So thank you very much for your time. There's another story you were working on with Daniel Sheridan about Britain's challenger to tanks. So who better to discuss that with than former tank commander Hamish de Breton Gordon? Now, just for a bit of context on this, Ukraine is deploying reserve forces equipped with British tanks in a bid to break a stalemate on the southern front. That's the perception amongst Russian sources, at least. Several pro-Kremlin military bloggers have posted images of Challenger 2 tanks in Zaporizhia equipped with screens to protect against attacks from kamikaze drones. And a US intelligence leak in April revealed that the tanks were assigned to the 82nd Air Assault Brigade, which analysts believe is meant to advance rapidly and exploit holes in the Russian defences. Now, Hamish, these modified challenges are pretty unique. We've done some, some breaking down of the images on our website this morning. What do you make of them as a former tank commander? Yes, very interesting, Francis. 
it's quite not unsurprising that some of my fellow military commentators have been huffing and puffing how the Ukrainians can come up with these great defensive measures and we don't have them on our own Challenger 2s. But I think it's slightly missing the point. So let me give an explanation. Something we refer to as theatre entry standards. Now, in military terms, theatre, we mean the theatre of war. And each theatre of war has different threats. So if we look at the Challenger 2, we have a base Challenger 2, which 120mm rifle gun, two machine guns, one coaxially mounted to the main armament, the main gun, and one for air defence, big engine to drive it along, and armour to defend it against the generic threat. We then look at where we are deploying this vehicle and what are the particular threats. Now, I spent most of my military career in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the threats to the Challenger 2 there were predominantly from roadside bombs and anti-tank guided missiles. Now, those who might envisage a picture of a Challenger 2 in Iraq or Afghanistan or Iraq predominantly for the roadside bombs, which were usually set off by somebody, a terrorist using a mobile phone, they had a lot of what we call ECM defense on it, electromagnetic type activity that interdicted the telephone signal. And these were various sort of aerials that one would have seen on the vehicle. Now, there's not that threat envisaged or hasn't emerged in Ukraine as far as we see it. So that's just an example. So we then look at what Ukrainians have done with these challenges and looking at the threats that predominate. First of all, a Challenger 2 is very well protected against what we call kinetic energy rounds. These are other tank rounds that are fired. They have a a heavy mass of a tungsten dart that's fired at great speed, 1,500 metres per second, and defeats the enemy tank by kinetic energy. But the Challenger 2 is very well protected against that with its what's called Chobham armour. The other threat to it is from anti-tank guided missiles. These are chemical engineer rounds. The destructive power is caused by a chemical reaction. Basically, when the warhead strikes the side of a tank, it then fires a, a, a red-hot dart of some sort of metal through the side of it. Now, The kinetic energy is defeated by the Chobham armour of the Challenger 2. The anti-tank guided weapons are defeated by bar armour. So on the piece in the Telegraph today, you'll see it looks like bars on the side. The idea is that when the missile hits the bar, it then detonates. So there is about a foot gap between the bar and the side of the tank, and that disperses all the energy that that round would have. Now... Moving on to the drone defence, Challenger 2s in the British Army don't have drone defence because they haven't deployed on operations where drones have been a massive threat. But we know in Ukraine they're a huge threat and there are lots of pictures of drones dropping hand grenades or explosives very much through the turret of a, a tank and disabling it that way. The mesh that we see on top of it is to prevent that happening. So I think it's a really interesting way of how Ukrainians have have adapted the Challenger 2 so it is most effective in the theatre of operations 
that they want to use it for. Now, as far as being a bit of a mark equipment, and again, in the piece it's described, these are key equipments in the 82nd Air Assault Brigade, which are likely to be used for, for the breakthrough. That might well be significant. But the Challenger 2 is the most powerful tank on the Ukrainian battlefield. It will take uh, Russian tanks out at three kilometers, which the Russian tanks can't do to Challenger 2. It's very well protected now with these additions to it for the Ukrainian theatre of operations. And let's hope it performs as it should do. My only slight regret is they only have 14. I'd much prefer to see there. They'll be far more effective in Ukraine than they would be sat in tank sheds in Tidworth. Thanks for that, Hamish. Now, just staying on the battlefield for a moment, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about this concept of, of the deep battle and the sort of death by a thousand cuts that we may be seeing rather than this huge expectation of a, of a moment where suddenly the Russian front line shatters. What are your thoughts on this? I wrote earlier on the week a piece for the paper after the foreign minister had described the offensive as something akin to the Monte Cassino battle in the Second World War. And people wanting instant success, if you like, from the the great counteroffensive. But really, a a little bit like Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino took five months, really, for the Allies to break through the Russian line. The German line. Sorry, (laughs) the German line. Freudian slip. To break through the Russian line in Ukraine, the Sorovkin line. So we're now two and a half months into it. But what I've been really impressed with, and similarly, the Monte Cassino theatre of operations, a lot of the deep battle was going on. But let's focus on Ukraine. We've seen it, the fires in fuel stations, the ammunition dumps in Ukraine and elsewhere on a very regular basis. The regular attacks on the Kirsch Bridge, which is the key um, logistic enabler for Crimea. All of this, and also another bit of innovation by the Ukrainians, these maritime drones interdicting some of the ships carrying weaponry and fuel around the place. And we say death by a thousand cuts and throw in, of course, the drone attacks on Moscow, which probably the most effective because suddenly the, the elite and even yesterday, one of the oligarchs in public decrying the war and complaining about it. So I think all these things are building up to a significance. Everybody wants that sort of shock action, the breakthrough, the Sorovkin line and the charge around Crimea. That can't happen unless the deep battle is done and the preparation is done so that we already know, and yeah, lots of posts on social media at the moment about Russian troops on the front lines with no ammunition and also now have been affected by some pretty effective behind-the-lines operation by Ukrainian Marines and Special Forces. And I think all this, it's the sum of the parts that really add up that gives one much more confidence that when that breakthrough does happen, not only will the, the, the Russians don't appear to have a mobile reserve, but actually their reserve of ammunition. And, and the one piece I, in my piece that I highlighted um, last week, although it's week before last, Russia was firing half a million artillery rounds a week. But that needs to be kept fed and all the rest of it. So I think it is hugely significant of what they're doing in the deep battle and absolutely essential because for the offensive to be effective and long lasting, we need to make sure, well, they need to make sure that all those supply lines are cut off 
so that Russia can't reinforce. And that, that's really, I think, the significance of it. We're still a few weeks or so away, I expect, from the counteroffensive breaking through. But each time we hear about these deep operations, it gives me confidence that actually they're covering all the bases. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. I'll come back to you for final thoughts uh, later. And I'm very interested to hear your perception on some of the Russian disinformation as well, because I know you've been looking into that. But first, I'm just going to go to James Kilner of our Moscow desk, a regular on the podcast, of course. Now, James, it's great to have you on to discuss a subject we haven't really covered in detail on the podcast before, namely the war between Russia and Georgia of 2008, which was the first European war of the 21st century, in many people's opinion. And as I say, it was the 15-year anniversary of it last week. At the time, you were a Reuters journalist covering that conflict from the front lines. The war in Ukraine has led to many reassessments of the significance of that brief five-day conflict. So first of all, take us back to 2008. How did the war begin and what was it about? So this is August 7, 2008. Mikhail really launches a preemptive strike on Russian pro-Russian rebel forces in the breakaway region of South Ossetia in Georgia. He was goaded into this by the Kremlin, which had been anticipating this attack. And he this attack then enabled the Kremlin to launch its own counterattack through from North Ossetia through South Ossetia. And it seems what it had been goading Georgia for some time. And the hot-headed and vehemently anti-Kremlin Sakashvili fell into this trap, really. And it enabled the Kremlin to really deliver a bloody nose to Georgia and a warning to other ex-Soviet states like Ukraine that their pro-Western aspirations had to be tempered because the Kremlin still considered um, them to be very much under their influence by the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union in 1991. So this was an operation which had limited aims, limited, it, it was limited to delivering a warning rather than regime changes, as we've, as we've seen was the Russian aim in, in Ukraine. Thanks, James. Now, it was a brief war, but it had significant implications, some of which have perhaps only become apparent in the context in the war in Ukraine. What do you think they were? So I, I think it's important to reflect on the Georgia war and its links to the current war in Ukraine. And I think there's two been two main there are two main reasons for, for this importance. And it was the 15th anniversary of the Russia Georgia war last last week. The first was the reaction by the West to what was essentially what was actually an invasion of, of Georgia. By, by the Kremlin, although they didn't go all the way to capture Tbilisi, they went somewhere down the road from Gori, a town in south of South Setia, which they'd captured and then and then drove down the road towards Tbilisi, which is 60 miles away. Um, the West, uh, the Western reaction was was very limited. Although they said some of the right things and, and promised some of the right things, etc. Within a year. Barack Obama, as U.S. president, was in Moscow, pressing that reset button. Russia went on to host the Winter Olympics in 2014 and the, and the Football World Cup in 2018. Europe continued to buy Russian gas, etc. So there, there was a feeling in the Kremlin that after its successful operation in, in, in Georgia, that the West would, be, would, would accept 
whatever status quo was was, was foisted on it by, by the Kremlin. And I think that's that that very much seeped into the the Kremlin mindset under Putin, and led to the 2014 initial invasion of Ukraine, the, the annexation of Crimea, and the invasion of Donbass region which again met with a rather sort of supine reaction from the West. And then again in 2022, when Putin was expecting a similar sort of befuddled reaction from the West, and, and he, he got a lot more than he bargained to uh, bargained for. But, but I, I think the reaction from the West in 2008 war is important to, to monitor and think about. And also, again, we, we talk about the... The U.S. election next year is, is very critical for the for for the war in Ukraine. The 2008 war in in Georgia came just before a U.S. election, which uh, Barack Obama went on to win. And again, it's this distraction in the West by its democratic process and changing of of, of leadership in Washington creates uh, turbulence, etc. The other reason I just want to touch on briefly is. When I saw the Russian forces, and I was on the Georgian side of things, and we were getting rolled back, and no one knew where the front line was because it kept changing every every day. Uh, but when, when I did see the Russian forces, and I followed them, I followed them driving a convoy of tanks and armored personnel cars drive out of Gori down the road towards Tbilisi, and I followed behind them and watched them turn off, etc. They looked like an unreformed Soviet army of the same military uniform. Same clashing course of wooden stocks, caps, very scruffy, disorganized affair. And, and they made several major military blunders as well during in, in a very short five-day war. Uh, the Kremlin also saw all this and it embarked on uh, something called the New Look Reform, which was designed to move the, the Russian army away from its Soviet heritage and modernize it into more of a sort of Western-style military. And this meant changing it from its huge divisional, big army premise designed to fight huge battles on the plains of Europe and North China to something more like Western NATO-style armies, more nimble, etc., smaller forces which were able to intervene in, in conflicts around the world, such as in Syria a few years later, as, as the Russians did in Syria a few years later. Now, the interesting thing about that, and it cost billions of dollars and, and led to some, some high-tech kit, but also a lot of corruption. The really interesting thing about that is that, ironically, you could argue that it's the, it was these changes in the Russian military which undermined its invasion of Ukraine in 2022. As we know, Putin went for a quick strike win, trying to capture Kiev in a few days, with uh, 100 and 100 odd thousand of it of his top parachute regiment guys, etc., and then they they got they got pushed back. They they got defeated from that objective, and then they had to re-reform to unmake some of the changes that they made in this so-called new look new look reform, and build back its army into big divisions, which are able to fight the new big war in Ukraine. So you got you got sort of a tension here between. Uh, the Kremlin being emboldened by the supine reaction of the West to its war in Georgia, egging it on to this, this sort of 2022 war in Ukraine. And you've also got the military reforms which happened after the 2008 war, undermining its military ambitions, so to speak. That's very interesting, James. Now, given this war, one would expect Georgia to be one of Ukraine's biggest supporters. But it's actually a more varied picture in reality. Is that fair? 
That's uh, fair and fair and not fair. I've, I've just spent about six, seven weeks in Georgia, traveling around Tbilisi and, and other cities and in the provinces, etc. And the vast majority of the Georgian population are, are very pro-West and polls all back this up, and they all want to join. Most of them want to join the EU and NATO, etc. But it's also a very conservative society, very pro-church, etc. And it currently has a government, the Georgian Green government, has been running the place since about. 2011, 2012, which is bankrolled by a billionaire, Bezina Ivanashvili, who earned most of his billions in Russia in the 1990s in a variety of different businesses. Now, analysts consider him to be fairly pro-Kremlin in his outlook. And certainly some of the policies that the, the Georgian government is pursuing back this up. They... they the Kremlin reopened, and I'm just giving you a couple of examples here. Kremlin reopened an air link with Georgia in May that had been closed since 2020, COVID hangover thing. And now Georgian Airways are flying back into Moscow and they are advertising Moscow, Tbilisi, Europe routes as Russians route into Europe and Europeans route back into Russia. So they, they, they facilitate Russian business, etc., which, which also obviously angers. Europe, etc. The Georgian government's also got uh, Mikhail Shakespeare in prison. He claims he's, he's dying of various illnesses and he certainly looks very thin. He's been in prison since 2001 and towards the end of, sorry, 2021, he came back from exile where he'd been in Ukraine as a government official, came back from exile in, in to Georgia for the first time since he left office eight years earlier. And he was promptly arrested and he's been in prison ever since. The Georgian government's been accused of, of doing the Kremlin's dirty work for, for, for doing the dirty work for the Kremlin in this instance. And certainly, Sakasvili is a bit of a pin-up hero for anti-Ukrainian, anti-Kremlin parties, etc. And by having him in prison, that, that creates a huge pretext and sort of complications for Georgia's relationship with the EU. The EU, Georgia also, earlier this year, tried to impose a bill which is very similar to the Kremlin's sort of anti-NGO, anti-media bill where where Western-sponsored uh, media outlets and NGOs would have to be come under more scrutiny from the government. This was a, sort of blocked by huge street protests. Uh, so, so it's a very complicated story. At the same time, there's more Ukrainian fighters fighting for Ukraine. Uh, sorry, more Georgian fighters fighting in Ukraine than any other countries. So it is a very complicated uh, story. Thank you, James. Yeah, that's very, very interesting and a subject we haven't really covered that extensively on the podcast. It's great to hear your expertise on it. Knowing what we know now, do you think it could have been prevented? I don't think the the involvement... Georgian forces, the best Georgian forces in 2008 were actually in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, fighting alongside the Western forces there. And uh, the depth of involvement of Western militaries in Georgia actually inside the, the country of Georgia, was relatively limited at that point. And, and this sort of in, invasion by the Kremlin hadn't been as anticipated as a Kremlin invasion of Ukraine in 2022, which gave them eight years from, 20, from the initial invasion in 2014 to prepare. So I don't think Western, the West could have prevented an invasion of, of Georgia in 2008 by the Kremlin. As, and when, when it comes to what lessons P, it taught Putin, as we discussed, it, it sort of it set the tone of this soft of the soft West being too interested in Russian gas, 
too nervous of the Russian bear to challenge it properly on, in its own backyard. And I think that is really, really important when you consider the mindset that is carried through from 2008, uh, really gave him a, a booster through to 2014 and the initial invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, another mega booster to the to his days of isolation under COVID and plotting Ukraine and 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 his hatred of Ukraine coming through to the February 24th, 2022 invasion. Our time is almost up, so let's turn now to our final thoughts. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon. Thank you, Francis. Um, we've talked a bit about disinformation earlier on in the pod today, and I don't want to cover any any old ground. But um, over the last couple of days, the the uptick in Russian disinformation ha- has been very marked, and uh, the Russian embassies have been spewing it out at a phenomenal rate. Particularly, a lot of it around uh, Lavrov, the foreign ministry minister, some of his discussions. There was a tweet this morning where Lavrov was really saying that the West was demonstrating its blatant intolerance to dissent and was trying to shape the the world globally to its own means, which I usually say whatever whatever comes out of the Kremlin or Russian embassies is diametrically opposed to the truth. Lavrov, who a few years ago I thought was was one of the good guys is is really just the, the the torrent of it and i know advising a number of organizations um in ukraine people are hugely concerned by some of the drivel coming out of uh, moscow which most of it is complete hokum and i was taken yesterday by a piece people might have seen on social media about the so-called us bio labs um, in Ukraine that are developing bioweapons, um, which is completely ridiculous. Uh, and sad to see even the likes of Tucker Carlson, uh, he, who does seem to spout, spout more for Russia than, than the US, picking this up uh, and suggesting that's exactly what's happening. But I, I certainly reassure the people I advise in Ukraine, this is this is, couldn't be further from the truth. And it's it's the Russians who who we know dabble in the chemical and biological field more than perhaps anybody else. And also in line with that, too, there is a number of pieces coming out of Russia from the general in charge of their chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear command talking about Ukraine planning to blow up the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which we've talked about false flags already today. Again, to me, that is is complete bunkum. And the the only people who could possibly gain from that would be the Russians. So I do tamper people or or suggest people anything coming out of Russian embassies do take it with a very large pinch of salt. And finally, it's interesting to see yet another senior Russian military commander has met his demise. The deputy defence minister, understand, died yesterday only at the age of 58. We know Sorovkin appears to be under house arrest and Prigozhin, who knows where. So maybe maybe the wheels are coming off with those who are supposed to be supporting Putin. We shall see. But disinformation coming out of Russia, be very wary of it. It's unlikely to have any element of truth in it. Thanks, Hamish. James Kilner, you have the final word today. So, Francis, I think it's still really important to be watching the grain deal in the Black Sea 
ships. There's a, there's a ship left Odessa yesterday, owned by, co-owned by a German company and a Chinese bank. It's flying under a Hong Kong flag. Now, it arrived in Odessa in February, 20, on t- February 23rd, 2022, which is the day before the invasion. Poor timing on, 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 the, on behalf of this boat, of, of, this, of this cargo ship. Now, it is sailing, it is sailed out of Odessa, full of grain by all accounts. And, and remember, this is, as, as we discussed this week, it, it's during this uh, Russian blockade of Ukrainian ports. And on Sunday, I reported for the Telegraph how the Russian commandos had boarded a, a Turkish ship sailing into Ukraine. So this ship is, is running the gauntlet. It's trying to move from Odessa to Istanbul and through the Bosphorus Strait to escape the Black Sea. It's, it's sailing with a, as far as, as, far as I understand, the ship, the ship owners have said it's sailing with a Ukrainian crew through Ukrainian national waters, territorial waters, and then Romanian territorial waters. Now, I think this is absolutely crucial to watch how the Russians react to this ship and whether it gets through. We know that other ships have been stuck in Odessa port since before the war, and some have made it during the war and haven't been able to leave so far. So this ship is going to be really important to watch for both the grain supplies in, in, in around the world and also for what happens with the rest of the, of the, of the ships stuck in Odessa port. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine the latest was today produced by Charles Gear, and executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.